You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for The Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see everyone here this morning. I just want to, before I get into my message this morning, I just want to, I want to give you a challenge and I'm, I'm just going to come out swinging here. Uh, I think one of the, I believe that one of the, the first steps that we can take in, in trusting God is to, is to pray because the very active prayer um, give, puts, takes things that we're concerned about and puts them into God's hands. So then we can't hold on to them anymore. And we, we are, and when we pray, we, we firmly believe in the God who does things, right? And so I want to I give you a challenge, uh, you know, just the, with, with what Josie was saying earlier. And there, there's lots of other things to pray for as well. But if you, if you need, I don't know, if you need to, you know, you can pray by yourself, definitely. We know that. But if, if there's, you know, any need that you want to, you know, gather with other people as an encouragement to keep on praying, um, you know, Sunday morning at, at about nine o'clock, there's usually some people meeting in the youth room downstairs praying. You could come to that too. That's open to anybody. Uh, there is a Facebook um, message uh, group, messenger group that uh, regularly um, we as, as members of our church, we pray and we share prayer requests. So you can, pray, you could ask, you can come talk to me and I'll put you on that so that you can hear uh, the prayer requests and that you can pray for that. Um, as well on Wednesday mornings at 7 a.m., um, I host a, just a, a Zoom prayer meeting. Uh, just for about half an hour, we, I realize you know, lives are busy and stuff. But we can take half an hour Wednesday mornings to pray. And we, we pray for, for everything. <laughs> and so three things, three ways that you can pray together as a group. And so if any of those are, you know, if God is saying, maybe you should do that, come talk to me. And I'll make sure you have the, the right information, the right uh, way to get hooked up with those things. We can pray. We can pray. <laughs> That's where it needs to start. All right, there is a common thread woven throughout the whole Bible that, well, there's lots of common threads, but this one in particular, that when when you pull this thread, it reveals God's heart toward the poor and the underdog. And this thread is tightly entwined with with other threads, the ideas of, of justice, of fair business practices, of generosity, and, and living with God in your heart and mind throughout the whole week, uh, not just on Sunday mornings. You know, I, th- <clears throat> I think of stories of, of, of Hagar and how God met her and, see, and, and sees her and provides for her. Uh, the story of Ruth and, and Boaz doing what he was supposed to do in order to treat her fairly and treat her well. Stories like Jesus actually touching the lepers to heal them. 
or, or stopping to talk to the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years and healing her. Stories of foreigners like Naaman, the Syrian army commander who was healed of leprosy through Elisha the prophet. Or passages like Isaiah 56 where God promises eunuchs as a, a, an everlasting memorial, better than a family tree. And it should come as no surprise then that with all like th- this huge mound of evidence that God loves the poor, God loves the alien and the foreigner, that there has always been people who, who look at that and, and they don't like it, and so they push back. They push back against those stories and, and they try to rip that thread out of the Bible. They try to rip the thread of God's love for the alien and the foreigner right out because they simply don't want to care for people who are different than they are. And if you were to go back in time to the early 1800s and, and travel to the, the southern United States and attend a church service there, there would have probably been, well, there would have been a very good number of, of people who would profess to be Christians and yet they would own slaves. They would worship God on Sunday morning with the rest of their white community and then go about using and abusing humans who were made in God's image as property the rest of their week. And unsurprisingly, uh, when you think about it, this group of people use lots of mental gymnastics and theology based on few very specific verses that were taken out of context. And they had, they had access to the whole written word of God, but they chose not to listen to it. They instead took the stuff that they agreed with, that they were comfortable with, that was easy to do, and they just went along with that. And the, these people somehow believed, and this was shocking to me as I was reading about it this week, that they actually believed that enslaving people of African descent was the way that they could actually evangelize these people. Because their line of thinking was that in Africa, well, they won't hear about Jesus. And so we'll take them, we'll bring them to America, we'll enslave them, and so they can hear about the good news of Jesus. I found it very interesting as well that pro-slavery Christians actually printed Bibles that took out anything that encouraged these slaves to revolt or think about gaining their freedom. Uh, There is actually three known copies of this version of the Bible left. But in it, these people had taken out 90% of the Old Testament. And there was a little bit over 50% of the New Testament left. (laughs) There's not much of a Bible there after they'd taken out all those things that they didn't agree with. Now, we look upon this situation with disgust, and, and rightly so. Like, how could they be so blind to the truth of the Bible. And I'd like to continue to to draw a fairly straight line from this account uh, to the Civil Rights Movement and and Martin Luther King Jr. On August 28, 1963, he delivered uh, what is known as the I Have a Dream speech at a rally in Washington, D.C. 
And, and King de- began his speech with a reference to the Emancipation Declaration, which had declared millions of slaves free in 1863. But 100 years later, he told the crowd they were still not free. Closer to the end of this speech, King described his dreams of freedom and equality arising from a land of slavery and hatred. And in the middle of this speech, King states, we will not be satisfied until justice rolls down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. And this is an allusion to Amos 5 verse 24. And I want to read to you the verses that that form the context of this historical quote, what King was thinking about. And so from Amos 5, verses 21 to 24, this is what God says through his prophet to his people. I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a never or an ever-flowing stream. It's pretty safe to say that God is not satisfied with his people's religious activities. And God won't be satisfied either until justice and righteousness prevail. And so we're going to be talking about Amos today as we continue our our survey of the minor prophets. And so in Amos 1 verse 1, this is what, what we can find out about who Amos was. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of King Uzziah of Judah and in the days of King Jeroboam, son of Joash of Israel, two years before the earthquake. That earthquake actually was referred to by Zechariah as well. So it must have been a fairly big, substantial earthquake that was remembered. We can see that Amos was a shepherd in a town called Tekoa, which is about a day's walk away from the city of Jerusalem in the southern kingdom. He was not a career prophet, uh, but he was significant nonetheless, as he was the first of of what theologians would call the writing prophets, uh, which means that he is chronologically the first prophet to actually write a book or to have his thoughts, his sermons, his, his his prophecies written down and have a book in the Bible named after him. There was prophets before him, but they hadn't written their own books and and that sort of thing. So we can know from the names of the kings that Amos was actively prophesying at the beginning of the ministries of of Isaiah and Hosea. There's definitely more than one prophet working at the same time. And this was probably around 760 years B.C., Now, as Greg pointed out last week, as he talked about Hosea, the kingdom of God's people had been divided. 
But this was a time of, of, of somewhat peaceful prosperity uh, for, the elite, for the elite in the kingdom, at least. And the Israelites thought that this was a sign of God's blessing on them. And they did not, and, but here's the thing, they didn't respond to this very well. And instead they were abusing their wealth. They were trampling all over the poor. And so this is what Amos prophesies to the southern kingdom of Judah. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Judah and for four, I will not revoke the punishment because they have rejected the law of the Lord and have not kept his statutes, but they have been led astray by the same lies after which their ancestors walked. And so I will send a fire on Judah and it shall devour the strongholds of Jerusalem. And just when the northern kingdom thought they might be safe, uh, Amos said, was, was to say this to the people of the northern kingdom, which is where Amos usually was prophesying against. Thus says the Lord, for three transgressions of Israel, and for four, I will not revoke the punishment, because they, they sell the righteous for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They who trample the head of the poor into the dust of the earth and push the afflicted out of the way, father and son go into the same girl so that my holy name is profaned. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge and in the house of their God they drink wine bought with fines they have imposed." God's people in the southern and northern kingdoms had utterly rejected the commandments of God. And they were guilty of enslaving other people. Their justice system was broken and judges were very easily bribed. Their sexual practices were perverted and they weren't following the law in regards to to loans and, and things kept in pledge for those loans. And in short, these people had either completely forgotten or intentionally disregarded the laws that God had given them to live by. And this fits in with this, the, the bigger picture of the northern kingdom of Israel, especially being led astray by evil kings and the idolatry that they practiced and that they set up. And so when King Jeroboam I, and just a reminder, Amos was active during Jeroboam II's reign, so two different people. Uh, When King Jeroboam I came to the throne of the newly created northern kingdom, he didn't want people to have to travel south to Jerusalem because that was in the southern kingdom. He didn't want them to do that even though God had commanded everyone to go to Jerusalem to worship God. And so he figures, hey, this is a good idea. Let's keep people from traveling to the southern kingdom. And instead, we'll keep them in in the northern kingdom. So here's what I will do. I will set up golden calf idols. I hope that kind of rings a bell to people. Like, why would he think that's a good idea? Anyways, he sets up golden calf idols and temples and and the structures around them um, at a place called Bethel in the south of his kingdom and then a place called Dan in the northern part of his kingdom. And the altar that was set up at Bethel became a main focal point in Amos' prophecies, as it was the main place 
where the northern kingdom and the king of the northern kingdom came to worship idols and to worship God, but kind of wrongly. And in fact, Amos got special attention from Amaziah, the priest who had been set up in Bethel, who is probably appointed by the king. Um, he was probably not a Levite, which God had historically commanded all the priests to come from the tribe of Levi. So that was, the, that was wrong. But he commanded, this man Amaziah commanded Amos to no longer prophesy. Don't prophesy around here, around Bethel, because it was an area that was protected by the king, and he didn't want to hear the bad news that Amos was preaching. And in response to this, Amos prophesied to Amaziah that his wife would become a prostitute and his children would be killed by the sword. So Amos was not there to make friends. <laughs> Amos preached about the coming judgment of God. He preaches that the day of the Lord is coming. And contrary to what some people were thinking that day of the Lord might be, the day of the Lord was to be darkness, not light. The people believed that, yes, God was coming to judge, but that it, they, 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 because they're the people of God, that they would be protected, and that the day of the Lord was going to be a good day for them because they would see the downfall of their enemies. But Amos says this in, in chapter 5, in 18 to 20, about the coming day of the Lord. Alas, for you who desire the day of the Lord, why do you want the day of the Lord? It is darkness, not light, as if someone fled from a lion and was met by a bear, or went into a house and rested a hand against the wall and was bitten by a snake. Is not the day of the Lord darkness, not light, and gloom with no brightness in it? We've been circling this idea of the Israelites having a very incomplete picture of who God is and what God desires from his people. Amos preaches they do not know how to do right. These people don't know, says the Lord, those who store up violence and robbery in their strongholds. So we're going to land on this idea now. Because this is one of the, the many, many connected threads that comes with the thread of God's heart for the poor. Reading through the messages that Amos delivered to the people of the northern kingdom gives us a pretty good idea of what these people were, they were, what they were still doing in regard to God's law, but also what they were not doing anymore. And so if you, if you go back to Leviticus 23, I'm not going to read it or anything today, but please go and check it out. God commands his people to have appointed festivals and, and, and tells them how to properly celebrate them. And these times were scattered throughout the year and, and they were supposed to be a holiday from doing regular work. Uh, they were a time of rejoicing for God's provision and feasting, and, and truly having a party to celebrate that. And it seems that these people had remembered these commands from God, <laughs> at least to the extent of following them in an outward, superficial way. 
And Amos uses sarcasm quite effectively in chapter 4, verses 4 and 5, when he, and when he tells the people, come to Bethel and transgress, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Bring a thank offering of leavened bread and proclaim freewill offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel. Wow. I love that, publish them. I'm like, Ugh. how often, you know, I don't know, I, I, I find it interesting, you know, when you, when you give a, a charitable donation, there's always that option like, oh, you can post this on your Facebook so all your friends know how good you are. Anyways, Amos also uses the literary technique of, of getting right up in one's grill. I think that's the technical term. When God tells his people in, in chapter 5, verses 21 to 23, I hate, I despise your festivals, and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the offerings of well-being of your fatted animals, I will not look upon. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the melody of your harps. I know that's the second time I've read those verses today. But it hits the matter, it hits the heart of the matter at hand. These people were doing the right actions. They were coming and they were taking part in the festivals and the assemblies, albeit not in the right place. They weren't in Jerusalem. They were going to Bethel. They were offering up their animals and their grain. They were singing loudly and playing their harps well. I bet their harps were even in tune. And yet God says about them very strong words. I hate them. I despise your actions. I'm not going to accept your offerings. I'm not even going to listen to the music you are playing. If there's any sort of confusion as to why Amos said that the day of the Lord was going to be a day of darkness, not a happy day for these people, let's clear that up right now. Amos' description of the coming day of the Lord was right before these verses. There's a very clear connection between the coming judgment of God and God's sincere hatred toward the worship practices of his people. The people had not paid close attention to the other parts of the law that gave a much fewer, much fuller view of what it was to worship God. Let's put it this way. In every week, there is 168 hours. Of those 168 hours, we get to spend about two hours every Sunday morning coming to church. Now, I know that I'm putting a, a modern idea onto scripture that is about 2,500 years old, but, but church, let's take this to heart. This means that for about a little over 1% 
of our week, we get to come and sing some songs. We get to put our offerings at the lo- in the lockbox and we get to hear someone preach the Word of God. One percent. If this is our primary or only way we worship God, what are we doing with the other 99%? This is what God was angry about. The Israelite people have trampled on the heads of the poor. They have sold the poor for a price of a pair of sandals. They've used weights and measures that work in their favor while cheating the poor. And all the while, the rich people who had kept the law of the Lord by celebrating have made for themselves a very comfortable life. Amos talks about beds made of ivory to relax upon while playing idle music on their instruments and calling out for someone to bring them something to drink. These people had forgotten the full picture of the law of holiness. In Leviticus 19, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare or gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. And again, a few verses later, you shall not defraud your neighbor, you shall not steal. You shall not render an unjust judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor or or defer to the great. With justice, you shall judge your neighbor. And in Deuteronomy, you shall have only a full and honest weight. You shall have only a full and honest measure so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are abhorrent to the Lord your God. God abhors those who act unfairly and unjustly. God hates when His people do not treat all others with fairness and with justice. Those are strong words. These commands of acting justly and acting fairly are not optional ideas. Worshiping God through festivals and assemblies was meant to be the celebrations of a life that was lived fairly and justly towards one's neighbor. And Amos reminds the people multiple times in a, to, to seek the Lord and live. Seek the Lord and live, or he will break out against the house of Joseph like fire, and it will devour Bethel with no one to quench it. Ah, you that turn justice to wormwood and bring righteousness to the ground. And again, seek the Lord and live. Seek good and not evil that you may live, and so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you. Just as you have said, hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. 
It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. These verses bring together the idea of, of seeking the Lord in proper worship and seeking good and justice for all the people together. You can't just do the worship part on on Sunday and think that God will overlook the rest of your week. And this is where Martin Luther King Jr. was inspired. God commanded his people to worship him in the right way, the full way, when he says, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. The thing about ever-flowing streams is that they keep on flowing. By their very nature, they will continue to flow all week, all month, all year, for the entire lifetime. One of the underlying issues that, that King was addressing was that there were thousands of churches and millions of people who were doing the Sunday morning worship part. But their worship of God did not extend into the the rest of the week. There was still racism. There was still discrimination. There was still violence and oppression against black people. And King refused to let these actions go unchecked. Like Amos, King's words were against empty, useless worship. If you want to worship God on Sunday morning, make sure you're doing it the rest of the week as well. The Apostle John picks up this thread and carries it forward in his first letter. And he writes in in 1 John 3, 17-18, How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods? and sees a brother or sister in need, and yet refuses help. Little children, let us love not in word or speech, but in truth and action. Let us not just give lip service to God on Sundays, but let us love in truth and action. Loving God, worshiping God, seeking God is an active endeavor to undertake all week long. And John continues a few verses later in a, in a very typically blunt way. Those who say, I love God and hate their brothers and sisters are liars. For those who do not love a brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not. These comm- the commandment we have from this, from him, sorry, is this. Those who love God must love their brothers and sisters also. I hope that as we have been pulling this thread about God's heart for the poor and how God wants us to interact with everyone, that church, you would be checking your heart. That I need to check my heart too. The fact is that God has shown us his love 
in a multitude of ways. And we'll be remembering that through communion in a few minutes. What God is asking of us is to respond by seeking the Lord and to let your righteousness, which in truth is Jesus' grace in our lives, continue to flow out to others like an ever-flowing stream. Remember, this is the 1%. What are you doing with the other 99%?